Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be taking a bit of a dive into somewhat recent history that, with the events of the last couple of years, will actually seem to many people like ancient history. And we're going to take a look at how the same-sex marriage fight first started in the United States. And ground zero, for those of you who remember, was Massachusetts under the governorship of one Mitt Romney. And most of the history histories of this period are written by LGBT activists who see what happened in Massachusetts and what subsequently spread across the United States as a great victory for human rights and for civil rights. But for those of us who believe that the institution of traditional marriage uh, is in fact essential to the flourishing of civilization, and I think that it bears mentioning here that almost everything, if not everything, that was predicted by opponents of redefining marriage back in the early 2000s have been not only considered right, but have been considered, have been proven obviously right. We are now, of course, debating things like drag queens reading to kids and sex changes for children. That's not somewhere that we thought we'd be in 2004. And I think it bears mentioning that gay rights activists would have told anybody who said we'd be here now. Uh, they would have called them a bigot if that had been brought up 20 years ago. And so there's a book out by Amy Contrada. She was involved in this fight in Massachusetts and in many subsequent fights over a variety of socially conservative issues. She's had to self-publish her book because her book has been cancelled and she's been barred from most platforms. And her book is titled Corrupt Bargains, How Gay Marriage Began in Massachusetts. And it's a very interesting book because it essentially lays out the history that nobody has access to. The history of somebody who was there, but the history also of somebody who's very carefully studied what took place, has access to media articles that have long since been memory hold from the internet, and and she joined me to talk about her book and to tell her story. This is that conversation. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on to talk about your book, Corrupt Bargains, How Gay Marriage Began in Massachusetts. And what's interesting about this book is, is it kind of reads like a, a for the record, as in you just wanted to put on record how exactly that happened. Obviously, with the 2015 Obergefell case, uh, same-sex marriage is, is, is here to stay. But what was your motivation behind producing this fairly mammoth uh, 500 with, let's see, with endnotes here, it's uh, almost 600 pages. What decided, uh, what made you decide to put all of this work into creating this, uh, this resource? Uh, great question. Um, short answer is I lived through it and I knew how important it was. And there was no other place that had preserved any of this information. So as things were happening, since I was very involved, I just kept everything. Um, the gay newspaper in Boston had articles, you know, the Boston Globe, things that disappeared later in the New York Times. And the, the only way you can find some AP stories, I printed them out, but they're no longer online. So as I continued to watch things, eventually leading up, of course, to Obergefell, which sort of imitated the strategy um, that was used in Massachusetts, I decided that people needed to know how it happened and how these politicians got away with these things and how the court ruling in um, Massachusetts was sort of a model for what happened with the Supreme Court of the United States, and including the very illegitimate nature of it to begin with, and how politicians would follow along and say, oh, yeah, the court ruling, that's law, we got to follow it. Right. And um this was sort of a, a major turning point for the United States. It was the first state um, that 
acknowledged and allowed gay marriage. So it really, it really set the tone for other states to follow. So I knew it was, you know, pivotal importance. And since I lived through it and I had all the documents and nowhere else are you going to find this stuff. There's one book by the major um, gay activist who was there, um, the fellow that um, got the legislature to follow orders. He wrote a book that one third of it is about the gay marriage events in Massachusetts, but his is more of a personal recollection. Yeah, anyhow, that book, it's more of a personal memoir with anecdotes. It's not documentary in any way. So that also, that sort of thing motivated me to preserve the documents. And that's what I did. So you talk about your, 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 your personal involvement. Maybe give our listeners just a bit of your background and what your personal involvement entailed. Okay. Um, so I'm what you would call a senior citizen at this point. But when my kids were little, we lived in Lexington, Massachusetts, the birthplace of American, the American Revolution. That's where the first real big battle took place against the British. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I was really into the whole history and everything. And that, But that was a disappointment to us because we suddenly realized we were sitting in a leftist stronghold. Um, we moved there for the schools, thinking the schools would be good. Next thing I know, um, they're handing out condoms in the school cafeteria, the high school, mm. and promoting, this is in the early 1990s, and promoting um, graphic sex education. So I got very involved because of that issue with a local group. And then I met other people around the state of Massachusetts who are also trying to fight that stuff. And one thing led to another. Then I was quite busy just taking care of the kids for a while, um, though I would write for the local newspaper and and do local things. But then when the gay marriage ruling uh, came about, I really got very active again um, and connected with Brian Kamaker, who's the head of mass resistance now. Mm-hmm. At the time, he was the head of the Parents' Rights Coalition, and he understood immediately that the problem in Massachusetts was not that there was something wrong with the Constitution and that we needed to have the Constitution changed. And he understood the total illegitimacy of the Supreme Court of Massachusetts ruling for gay marriage. They had um, no constitutional authority to, to have anything to say about it. So he got together some people and we engaged in the battle as we saw it, which was the illegit illeg- excuse me, illegitimacy of the ruling itself. Um, And then when everybody got sidetracked by the constitutional amendments, our point was you're never going to pass anything anyhow. But beyond that, there's nothing wrong with the Constitution. It was just the politicians that included Governor Mitt Romney and the legislative leaders who um, were basically distracting the public and saying, oh, the only thing we can do about this is pass an, pass an amendment. So um, we tried to focus on the constitutional issue and say the judges are the problem. Let's get these judges removed because they acted beyond their authority. Anyhow, so I got very involved back in 2000, late 2003, early 2004, and we were also very involved in what was going on in the schools at that time. Um, and we were some of the first people in the country to point out the transgender problems that have hit um, parents and schools everywhere. And in fact, we were the first people who 
reported on the first people in the conservative media who reported on what's going on at the Boston Children's Hospital, which was the uh, the first gender clinic in the United States. Mm. So I've um, been pretty active for 30 years with maybe 10 years sort of semi off taking care of the kids. But so let's back up a little bit for listeners to kind of frame the debate, because I have the book right in front of me. And I remember actually following what was going on in Massachusetts back in uh, as far as 2003, 2004, mainly because this was, you know, where the, the, the same sex marriage, the redefinition of marriage battleground started. It was kind of ground zero for what was happening. But a lot of people, this is uh, almost 20 years ago now. And so there's a lot of people who are going to be fuzzy on the details. So maybe just to frame this discussion, give us a little bit of a chronology uh, on how this started to unfold. Okay, the chronology goes back to uh, the late 1990s. And and very perceptive people saw it coming. I'm thinking primarily of um, the editor of the conservative Massachusetts News at the time, Ed Pollack. He saw what was going on in Vermont where um, a civil unions law had been passed. And he said, oh, this is coming our way. We know it's coming our way. Let's let's do something about it. So back in the late 90s, he got together um, a bunch of people that got a constitutional amendment, which would have worked, a, a citizen's petition, which only required two successive legislative votes of 25% before it would go on to the popular vote. So it would have passed the legislature, but that's when the corruption first really reared its ugly head. Um, he wanted to define marriage as one man and one woman, period. But the legislative um, leadership both Republican and Democrat got together and illegally adjourned the legislature when it was constitutionally required to vote on this. Now, that was right before Mitt Romney became governor. Um, the acting governor at the time, who was also a Republican, should have called the legislature back into session. She did not. Romney should have when he came to office. He did not. So the one amendment which would have passed, even in the popular vote, were sure that was in 2002, scuttled illegally. So that's like our first major corrupt bargain that was made. Um, and then Romney becomes governor early 2003. Later in 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Court decides that they're going to say that gay marriage is a constitutional right, which of course is not. The Constitution of Massachusetts was written by John Adams, our second U.S. president. Um, so that was just pure nonsense. And in their ruling, they didn't even pretend to order the legislature to change the law or the governor was not even mentioned. They didn't say anything about the governor doing anything. The legislature um, was advised to look at the laws. And, you know, if you think it's a good thing, why don't you change the laws to allow gay marriage? But it wasn't an order. And in any case, they had no right to order the legislature. So the legislature did nothing. They just sort of sat on their rears. But Mitt Romney, behind the scenes, as he kept saying he was protecting real marriage, he was doing the exact opposite. His uh, assistants, in particular his chief legal counsel, were actually getting ready to implement gay marriage across the state. So by May 20, or excuse me, May 2004, that's when the Supreme Court said that the legislature might have changed the laws by then, but they hadn't. Mitt Romney went ahead and had his uh, agencies 
change the marriage licenses, do training for town clerks and justices of the peace. And he threatened them if they didn't do their job, they'd be fined. Um, so sure enough, May comes around and Mitt Romney's uh, people had gay marriage started, even though the law never changed. So all the while, Romney's saying, oh, I'm protecting marriage. I'm doing everything I can. I'm I'm trying to help get these constitutional amendments passed. And he was just basically not telling the truth because behind the scenes, he was doing all this other stuff. Now, to back up again, what's interesting is the historical record shows that he promised the gay Republican group called the Log Cabin Republicans of Massachusetts way back in 1994. He promised them that he would support gay rights in every way. That's when he was running against Ted Kennedy for Senate, and he lost. Then he made that same promise to them in 2002. We found out later, um, though we knew in our guts, we knew that that's what had happened. He had promised them that he would not fight gay marriage should the court um, pass this rule or uh, make the ruling that they did. So he was being very, very dishonest. Now, one reason I wrote the book this is sort of a an expansion and um, a redo of an earlier volume, which was much shorter, that I wrote in 2011. The reason I wrote it then was because we in Massachusetts, who knew Mitt Romney well, were trying to prevent the Republicans from nominating him for president, which unfortunately they did in 2012. So it didn't work then. But then we figured this information is so important. Um, and I went back and I found even more and I expanded certain chapters. Um, so it's not about preventing Romney anymore. I don't think he's got much of a future. So it's, it's quite interesting, by the way, that he voted for the federal law that was just passed, making gay marriage um, a national institution. Uh, it was a, the end of 2020. He voted for that. So we know that he was never honest about preserving real marriage. So well, one one question, because you were very much you know involved with all of this, uh, is that when we're like talking about two thousand four, I think it's important for the listeners to have context. You know, in two thousand four midterms was the, it was sort of like a wave of referendums across the United States where states were actually um, implementing constitutional amendments to limit marriage to one man and one woman 2004 in retrospect is sort of the last big surge of, of of statewide legislation and constitutional amendments defining marriage properly and all of those of course were tossed out uh, with Obergefell in 2015 but again for, for more context just to show how far outside the realm of public opinion um, Romney and his people were right in 2008 California of all places voted uh, to overturn same-sex marriage so Romney was Romney was really ahead of the curve do you have any sense of why this Mormon guy would be so ahead of the curve in terms of getting behind the LGBT agenda speculation that I dare not say. <laughs> well, um, I I know some of our best activists were truly conservative Mormons, okay? Mm -hmm. But I know if you look, there's a broad spectrum of, of people who belong to the Mormon religion. Some of them are pretty liberal. Um, and I think Romney was always 
He was a fiscal conservative, and that was about it. But I think socially, his heart was never there for whatever reason. Now, I don't know anything about his personal life, really. We know he had a beautiful wife and five five children. Uh, I don't know anything else. I don't know why he was uh, so gung-ho about supporting the log cabin Republicans who were asking for him to support gay rights issues. Um, he was a big businessman, as you know. He was at Bain Consulting. And uh, I think in that world, there was a lot greater acceptance of liberal social issues or ideas, rather. I, I can't really explain him because his wife and one of his sons and daughters-in-law actually voted uh, for the good uh, amendment attempt, attempt. Rather, they put their signature on um, the petition to get that on the ballot. Now, I don't know. I, I, I just can't answer that question. I, I have some thoughts that I probably shouldn't share. Yeah, they're becoming a little more liberal on this issue. Um, generally speaking, over the last decade plus. So I, I don't know. It's like all of the other churches in America have become more liberal. I find it particularly interesting because, you know, there was all these exposés put out after the 2008 uh, California vote, like the documentary Eight, the Mormon Proposition, which basically uh, revealed that the Mormon church ch- like funneled a lot of money into right, campaigns right. to support traditional marriage. Um, and, you know, the way the Mormon church is structured, they take the orders directly from the top. And so more like, uh, like, especially for that time, Romney is absolutely an aberration. He's not the norm because four years later, you have the leaders of, of uh, his religion um, mm-hmm. who are advocating for traditional marriage and it with them and the, both uh, the um, Mormons and the Catholic church uh, funneling money into these um, PR campaigns that were tremendously successful. Right. Now, oh, speaking of that California Prop 8, one of the interesting things about that, you probably know who it was. The judge who overturned that was openly homosexual, and he actually um, faulted the um, the attorney who argued for uh, keeping Prop 8. He said that his arguments were weak because, you know, all they said was, oh, it's all about having a mother and father for every child. And that's basically all the argument was in Massachusetts as well. Nobody would ever go beyond that and speak about morality or public health or just the the larger constitutional issue that this is simply illegitimate constitutionally. And no, a court ruling is not law. Nobody would speak about that. Um, But anyhow, in California, I thought that was interesting that it was an openly homosexual judge that, uh, successfully overturned that. So interestingly, when when you say corrupt bargains, maybe let's uh, let's share just a few of these bargains, because there's another interesting book by uh, by Daryl Paul uh, called um, um, How How the Movement Brought America to to um, Promotion of LGBT. It's a really interesting book. I've had him on the podcast before. And the story of of this moral revolution and how people's views transformed in just a couple of decades. And of course, uh, with all of the madness we see going on now, that transformation seems to be near complete and it's it's very interesting to me about your book that that this might have begun in Massachusetts so one of the things I wanted to ask you was maybe um recap for our listeners 
uh, how the Massachusetts strategy by LGBT activists and their political allies turned out to be the blueprint for Obergefell 11 years later. Okay, well, I want to back up a tiny bit. They they did have a a right a rights law passed. Gosh, I'm not sure of the exact date. It was sometime in the late '80s, I believe, um, where you could not discriminate against anyone based on sexual orientation, which of course was never defined. Um, and that's one of my big bugaboos: is that n- none of these terms that all of these court rulings address, none of the terms are ever defined. So who knows what sexual orientation does or does not include? Who knows what gender identity includes? They always just define that as gender is gender. Um, So we go way back to the gay rights bill in Massachusetts originally. And then there was a gay rights in the schools bill passed in 1993, or was it 1992? I'm not sure when the law was passed, but all of that stuff was sitting there. And uh, that was unchallenged. No one ever said, hey, if we're going to have a rights um, for people based on sexual orientation, we need to define it. That's never challenged. I mean, that's one of the things that continues all the way through Obergefell. We don't know what these things are. And yet we're making special rights for people who define themselves in that way. So that I think that's super important. That's just my belief that that underlies it all. The sloppiness about word usage and terms embedded in the law or embedded in ruling. So, um, in 2002, 2003, leading up to the um, court ruling, um, it was just a big barrage of uh, propaganda about oh, I can't visit my dying partner in the hospital. A lot of it was emotional propaganda like that. And at the time, I don't believe hospitals were really keeping anyone from visiting their dying relative. Um, It was just bogus emotional things like, oh, you know, we we have a right to have children too. Um, This is unfair. It's all about fairness. So um, that's the other thing that people fell for. And they successfully would use the name calling if you dared to question anything. Of course, you're a homophobe. And so many people were afraid of being called a homophobe that they wouldn't challenge anything um, on the basis of constitutional theory or or practice or whatever. So let's see, what else would we say about that? Um, I think the other thing is um, politicians, especially yeah, yeah. People like Romney and the legislative leadership, all they would ever say is the ruling is law. The ruling is law. And there were a few great um, legal voices that came out in our uh, on our side. For instance, Liberty Council, uh, Matt Stayroll was really good on that. But so many of the supposedly conservative legal groups never really address that. They just, they let the court say, yeah, we make law, (laughs) instead of saying, no, you don't make law. Okay, so that's another thing that's happened with the Obergefell, that uh, they got away with it in Massachusetts. Um, There were a few voices that challenged that, but uh, it's still going on. We have this horrible ruling in 2020, the Bostock ruling about um, 
employment law, how you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And neither of those terms are defined. But everyone's saying, oh, yeah, that's law. And it applies to every law on the books, not just employment law. No one challenges these things. So that certainly started in Massachusetts. They got away with it there. Um, the other thing that happened, well, as I said, you're called names if you challenge in any way. You cannot bring up morality. You cannot bring up religion. You cannot bring up public health and why there are public health ramifications to homosexual behaviors. Can't bring any of that stuff up. All you can say is every child needs a mother and a father. And that's why we have to preserve real marriage. That was about it for uh, most of the conservative arguments. Was there anybody mounting, because again, in, in 2004, in retrospect, uh, in Massachusetts is one of the places where, politically speaking, this all began. Was anybody putting forward coherent arguments based on morality, based on something uh, deeper um, than sort of obscure references to natural law? Yeah, you're right. Obscure references to natural law was about as far as it got. I mean, there were some voices like um, one of my favorite people um, is uh, C.J. Doyle of the Catholic Action League of Massachusetts. He would say things, but even the Catholic leadership, you know, wouldn't come out and be more explicit about moral issues or even and nobody except uh, maybe our group which was at the time Parents' Rights Coalition, and then we were briefly called Article 8 Alliance for reasons I won't go into. Yeah, we brought out public health issues, but no, nobody nobody would do that. It, it was very frustrating. Um, no national group. It's just um, every kid needs a mom and a dad. That's about it. No moral arguments came out whatsoever. Everybody thought that would turn off the public. One of the interesting things is if you look at sort of a historical counterfactual, what you've what you've seen in some places like so, for example, in Ireland, leading up to the abortion referendum in 2018, you had a lot of very good Catholic clergy who decided not to speak out in favor uh, of the pro-life position, not because they weren't willing to or because they lacked the courage, but simply because a lot of the abuse scandals um, made them make the calculation that perhaps it would be smarter um, to stay silent on this. Do you think that in Massachusetts that was a factor of some? Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's that's definitely one of the things that was going on. And because the Boston Globe newspaper was the one that broke that story about the priest abuse of children and whatever. They knew, uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, you brought up a good point there. The Catholics knew for sure that if they dared to bring it up, the Boston Globe would be all over them. So definitely, definitely. In retrospect, is to watch about how some of the most significant voices in favor of, of, of traditional marriage, et cetera, got silenced. And so there was almost no moral opposition, but again, not always because people lacked the courage, but sometimes because they made a strategic decision that we can agree with or disagree with in hindsight. But the strategic decision was based on, we don't want to hurt this cause by adding our voice to this in the wake of, you know, again, the Boston Globe exposés, which then rippled across the country. Um, 
What are uh, so like like this this book here is is really fascinating to me as sort of a work of history. Like I said at the beginning, I feel like this book is is very much a for the record book. If you want to know how we got from here to there, uh, where this all kind of began politically speaking, corrupt bargains is a great place to start. Um, but with with 2015 Obergefell, and then you of course have the uh, the Bostock Supreme Court decision authored by uh, Supreme Court Justice Neil Bostock, which essentially Bors- puts Gorsuch, yeah. Gorsuch, sorry, yes. Which puts supposedly uh, conservative, right? Yeah, which puts gender ideology under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Is this book just uh, a work of history, or is there is there anything that you think is instructive going forward? Because to some degree, some of these fights seem like they're finished. Um, You know, you see a lot of was one of the things I've noticed is on some of these really significant fights where conservatives are winning victories, such as, um, you know, passing laws against the gender mutilation of children. Yes, they're victories. But if you consider where we were 10 years ago, none of these things were, were were essentially happening yet. So we're winning victories against things that didn't even exist a short amount of time ago in the public conversation. And so to that degree, they feel kind of hollow. Is there, is there anything in, 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 in your research that you would say um, is an example of, of, of how we should operate going forward? Or is this just really a for the record here? I was there. Here's how it happened. <laughs> oh boy. Well, I'm not a political strategist. Number one, number two. <laughs> yeah. I, I do feel like it's primarily a political history in great detail for, but it's, I, this is a tough thing for me to answer because I'm feeling somewhat discouraged myself about the way things are going. However, if you look at history and you understand that we are in fact on a slippery slope and we, it's like, a, and I told you so history, you know, okay, guys, you didn't stop it here. Um, this is what happens if you don't step up and stop being a chicken about saying something about morality or whatever. You got to speak up at the time, which we didn't do then. Um, and even when uh, getting back to the gender mutilation issue, when Boston Children's Hospital opened up, and I wish we had done more at the time than we did in 2007 when that clinic first opened. So um, I guess the main thing is I. It's not too late to overturn. I'm going to go out on my limb here and say I think all anti-discrimination law on the basis of LGBT, all of that needs to be overturned. How are we going to get there? I don't know. But here's where it leads. It led to the transgender craziness. If we had stopped gay marriage when we had the chance by speaking more boldly, and I think that was the major flaw. We didn't people did not speak out boldly enough. Um, the leadership of the major conservative groups told everyone to hold back, um, to be polite, be nice. So nobody was bold in their speech and nobody said, hey, court rulings aren't lawed. Forget it. Just ignore it. Um, so I guess the moral of my book is speak out boldly and immediately and don't hold back. And that's what everybody did in 2004 with gay marriage in Massachusetts. Final question then, where can people uh, find this book? And to social conservatives who are interested in the history of the last 20 years, I really do recommend uh, Corrupt Bargains. Where can people get a copy of this if they'd like to prove it for themselves? Well, another little uh, thing about my biography, I'm banned. I'm a banned person. Okay. My books are banned. 
Amazon banned me when I uh, had Health Hazards of Homosexuality published in 2017. It was on Amazon for three years, and then people started complaining, so I'm off. So I couldn't publish this book. It is self-published, because why? Publishers won't touch it. It's too hot. Okay, so it is self-published. We've self-printed it. I mean, we have a printer, um, but we have only Massachusetts... um, uh, mass, excuse me, massresistance.org is the only place we can sell it because we can't even open open up a sales channel because of our content. We are not allowed to um, have payments processed on credit cards. Credit card companies are blocking a lot of conservatives like us right now. So via massresistance.org, you can also go to the book's website, which is... <clears throat> Let me get it exactly right. It's corruptbargains-gaymarriagebook.info. So corruptbargains-altogether-gaymarriagebook.info, and that links to the purchase button, which goes to massresistance.org. You can also just go to the homepage of massresistance.org, and down in the bottom right column, you'll see the order Um possibility down there so that's how you get it well thank you so much for joining me to talk about it and i hope uh, people purchase the book well i'm very glad you liked the book and thank you very much for having me ladies and gentlemen that was my conversation with amy contrada the author of corrupt bargains how gay marriage began in massachusetts thank you so much for joining us this week if you'd like to listen to past shows or subscribe to future shows please do head on over to lifesitenews.com click the podcast tab there you can find our podcast we're glad you joined us this week and we hope you'll join us again next week